When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Book Riot Podcast. Um, after a couple relatively slow weeks of news, it's oh my god, the news! I, the, the, trans, the the the, the ele- people gave the election um, um, a wide berth uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the Obama book coming that came out, and then the National Book Awards moved around. Got some other news to go, so we got quite a bit of interesting stuff to do. Um, if you're listening to this, I think you still might be able to get your recommendation request in under the wire. So you, 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 you might be able to get it in there. So if you've got something, you've been meaning to do it, go ahead and send us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. We're coming up on our last bonus episode of the year, which will be our favorite reads of 2020. Um, that is being released December 9th. So we're going to be off yes. next week for Thanksgiving. Then we're coming back with a regular show on just to give people some sense and also for me to know what is going on. November 30th, we will have a regular show. Um, no bonus episode on the 2nd. And then our last bonus episode of the year will be December 9th. And that'll be our favorite reads of the year. Had some emails telling us about your favorite reads. I'm holding those in abeyance until then. We can talk, we'll talk about um, uh, what's going on there. Also gives me a few extra days to read a few things I haven't. Um, that might make may, might make my list, including one Barack Obama's book, which is coming out tomorrow. I'm like I'm like a hundred pages into it. A hundred already. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Don't tell me anything. Um, on my list to get to before the end of the year, I'm going to read Mexican Gothic. Lanny wrote in to say she heard us talking about Mexican Gothic and sort of circling it like buzzards of a dead carcass. <laughs> And she's like, just dive in. You're going to like it. I know. I've listened to you. I know what you're saying. I think you're going to like it. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do The Orchard by David Hopin. I hope to get both of those under my belt before we record um, next week for that December night show. I think I'm going to run through this weekend. Liberty couldn't shut up about The Orchard, so I'm going to dive in. And then I know. I, the secret history with a, with, in a Jewish um, school in Florida. I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm in. I, it, came out, it came out on Tuesday. Um, so my copy's in the okay. mail. So I'm yeah, going to do those two. Uh, we'll see. That is also on my list. I won't get to it no, by the time fine. we record that episode. But our when we're back on November 30th for a regular episode, that's our mm. first of the double installments of Holiday Rex. That's show. right. We'll be ready so, to rock and roll. And maybe I'll be recommending those. Maybe that's you can get them in, we can oh, get them in that way too to see what's going on there. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. Um, a bummer in a lot of ways of a, of a follow-up to do, um, boy, I, it's, I don't want to get in too much into it because it's one of those things that is unpleasant for people and we don't want to make people listen to it too much, except to say that as we were talking excitedly about Chimamanda's review of, um, Barack Obama's book, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think I had forgotten or Mm -hmm. had thought that she had walked back some statements she made that are really not great about trans people um, and trans women in particular. And I thought, I, it, I didn't have her on my radar to watch out for. Again, I remembered it once something else happened where she basically tweeted pretty, it wasn't like rah-rah support for she whom shall not be named opinions on trans people, but not far. And long story short, it's going to be a while before you hear us talk positively about yeah. her or her work. Um, I hope in the fullness of time that she will come to understand in a way that um, I'm still learning to um, and also listen to trans people about their experiences and the reality of their lives. Um, but regrettably, we didn't catch it at the time, um, but we're catching it now. Thank you for those of you who wrote in. We did see it before we got the emails. It was like the same day. It was yeah, like the we next like, day. It was like an hour after we finished yeah. the recording last week. And we're like, oh. Uh, it's really too bad. And I, it's really too bad. I'm so sorry yeah, for those of you this... who are hurt by this um, and heard us talk about her 
probably after if you know if you're extremely online or even sort of online there was some news and going around i i'm sorry you had the experience of hearing us talk uncritically yeah. about that review yeah and well thank you to everybody who emailed us or pinged us in some way to make sure that we had seen this and to bring it back up i was in the the same place that you were where you know I thought that I remembered that she had apologized or walked something back or like Mm -hmm. made some sort of reparative statements after the original one. And that must be a memory I invented. Um, And if we had had that top of mind, we certainly would not have talked about her the way that we did last week. So thank you all for that you reached out and the way that you reached out and for the good faith there and Mm -hmm. just want to acknowledge that we're not intending in any way to be in the business of um, promoting her, promoting anybody's work um, that is harmful to anybody. So... Luckily now, I'm super bummed. Like it's yeah, it's like bummed. an extra bummer when it happens. It's about the, this like combination of she who shall not be named and now Chimamanda. Like it's an extra bummer when this happens, and it's a person who has created work that is yeah. big and beautiful and meaningful and has impacted a lot of people's lives. And it's a, it's just a difficult and complex thing to have to sit with. Um, yeah, I certainly hope also that the New York Times is getting a lot of emails about. Curious about that. Mm-hmm. Curious about that. Um, the, yeah, the nice there, thing we, is, as, yeah. there's plenty of so, reviews to read about Obama now, and right. you know, as we found, <laughs> one, one one thing that's true for every kind of author, or most kinds of authors, is there's a lot of books and authors out there. So we're going to pick and choose who we talk about mm-hmm. um, as the best expression of our values, but also as the best expression of what we want this show to be. And for now, that's mm-hmm. that's where we are. Um, anyway. Should we move along? More listener feedback? Let's move along. Yeah, more listener feedback. I got a nice uh, Instagram DM from someone who was like, by the way, Brad Pitt has played a really bad guy. He was a really bad guy in the movie California with a K. I don't remember Um, this movie at all. I remember the alternate spelling and that's about it. I remember that the movie existed. I'm not sure that I've ever seen it. So I think we probably both omitted it out of the fact that we don't have this in our (laughs) mental Mm -hmm. frame of reference. Um, But he has done that apparently. And now I'm curious about, Mm -hmm. about that. So maybe I'll go back and watch California, but thank you for letting us know. Um, We also had a query. mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. That's like that. Just the name alone feels so mid nineties. Like I can see the poster. I can see the poster and like the red, like blood scribble font. Like I, that's so 12 monkey seven, like right in there. I'm sure it's right in there. It feels like it has to have a red hot chili pepper song on the soundtrack. (laughs) I think there was a, wasn't there a red hot chili pepper album called California? Uh, where was Californication? Same diff, right? Or was that the okay, um, yeah. David Duchovny show? What was the one? What, it what was, was both. The... Both. I think it was both. Yeah, Californication just... hacks puns. <laughs> that, that's been played out anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Natural born um... Californication. <laughs> that was what it is. It's like this yes. is like the ninetieth thing I've ever said. <laughs> You said David Duchovny and the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the same oh, like two minute span. We've I just know. we might as well hop in the DeLorean. <laughs> this is actually what the DeLorean is fueled on. <laughs> I think I just conjured the cast of Friends that was so ninety. They're now here in the room with me. Uh, anyway, we got well, a Jeff. Re- very heartfelt query that you wouldn't got some help with. So tell us about that. Yeah, so we had a, a listener write in uh, that they have a teenage child who is non-binary and who's struggling with um, depression and suicidal ideation. And they were wondering about uplifting YA books for a quote-unquote new non-binary or genderqueer person to be reading. Um, so I polled our contributor core and asked them for some recommendations. I thought I would share those here. And then we trust mm. that all of y'all have more recommendations as well. And you can send those to us at podcast at bookriot.com and we will forward them on to this listener. So it's listeners helping listeners. Um, But the titles that were recommended to us are The Prince and the Dressmaker, Dreadnought, Brightsiders, One in Every Crowd, Euphoria Kids, 
And the last one is Felix Ever After, with the note that the inciting event that kicks off Felix Ever After might be really triggering. It's very transphobic, um, but that sets the story in motion. And our contributors widely sort of recommended the book, um, just with the knowledge that you might want to check out what's going on there in the beginning of the book, depending on who you're giving it to. Mm. Um, and then the um, our Hey YA podcast that Book Riot produces um, has extra credit episodes, and some of those have addressed uh, similar requests in the episodes 69.5 and 70.5. So those might be places to start um, if you are listening here and looking for recommendations. But listeners, please, we know y'all know great books mm-hmm. that you would recommend to a non-binary teenager who's going through a difficult time um, so anything uplifting that you'd like to shout out you can send those again podcast at bookriot.com and we will forward them on so thanks in advance also you can find the links to i'll list out those books and the other links we talked to and the show notes um bookriot.com slash listen or probably most people are listening in a podcatcher of some type and maybe you don't know but the show notes include all the links to our sponsors and mm-hmm. stuff down there as well. I've got listener feedback, but it's 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 a null hypothesis feedback, which is I got no feedback from people oh. who loved where the wild things are as a kid. No, <laughs> so it doesn't you can't prove a negative, but we've got no <laughs> affirmative evidence. No one said, you know what? I really love where the wild things are, which goes to my to my general theory that that's something that people who are too cool to read one fish blue fish um, buy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know okay. what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. I don't have a. I don't have a horse in this race. We're not reading books to kids. No one does. House, no so. one has a horse. There's no horses in this race. No one cares. Just a just a big old empty field of green with hipsters rolling around in it, reading, <laughs> thinking they like this book. It's a Mumford and Sons album cover. Yeah, it's a Mumford. That's true. It really is. Uh, Obama. Obama. Sales. I've got a quiz Breaking for you. Breaking some records. I've got a quiz okay. for you. I didn't look at this. Maybe it was in this thing, this link. I looked at a different link. I'm going to give you three titles, and you tell uh-huh. me in order which one of them sold more books on the first day. Okay. We've got Barack Obama's A Promised Land. Uh-huh. We've got Michelle Obama's book Becoming. Okay. And Mary Trump's book Too Much and Never Enough. Please for me, okay. Rebecca Shinsky. In ascending order, three to one. Ascending order. Which sold the fewest of those three on day one? Mary Trump. Incorrect. Thank you for playing. Oh, becoming. Becoming? Okay. Number three. Uh, okay. Then Mary Trump. Incorrect. And then Barack. Incorrect. In- but, but the headline that I saw says Barack Obama breaks the first day sales record for the that, largest publisher in the world. Why do you think I'm doing this bit with you, Rebecca? Come on. <laughs> Random Jeff, House. But the headlines. But the headlines. Random oh, House. Oh, but Mary says, Trump was at Random House. There you go. Damn it. Simon and Schuster says their company record for opening day sales in the US when Mary Trump's Too Much and Never Enough sold nine hundred and fifty thousand units on his first day July fourteenth. Holy moly. So Penguin Random House is saying that A Promised Land sold 887,000 units, including pre-orders, all formats, editions, U.S. and Canada, the first day of publication. And Michelle Obama's Becoming sold 725 in its first day on sale, moving 1.4 million units the first week on sale. I think this is a statistic we could win many bar bets in extremely nerdy bars with. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I are you right. surprised? I mean, come on. I am. I am surprised. Why? 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 Why is this true? Well, am why I does this have to be true? Why I do we have to live actually, in this world? Wait. Okay. I'm not so much surprised as I am, I guess, predictably disappointed. It's not that I'm <laughs> like, angry. It's not that I'm angry. It's that I'm right. disappointed. <laughs> that I'm disappointed that the the general public I feel like I should put on like David Axelrod voice to deliver this lecture yeah. that, that like that like the general public is probably generally looking for mm. something that is 
timely and gossipy and a little bit more sensational. And definitely the Mary Trump book has the capacity to be those things. The marketing and buzz around it was definitely those things. And then the timing of mm-hmm. that book midsummer when we were like at one of the fever pitch moments of the election cycle makes a lot of sense. The number of people that want to sit down and read a 750 page presidential biography, even if it is by our favorite dad, mm-hmm. like, is just lower than that. So I wish that we lived in the world where everybody was going to be hanging out with Barack, but we don't. Yeah, I and... mean, I, I there's no, I cannot explain away for myself the surprise that it sold that many units on its first day. Did we cover this? I don't. I think we covered that it sold well. I don't remember this number that it was, you I know, don't remember that number a either. 50, a 50 grand short of a mil, like which would be, you know, a mm-hmm. real... Uh, I mean, it's a round number, so it doesn't really matter, but that would be unusual in the extreme and a new meridian for other people to cross. I mean, I think I would still take Becoming or a Promised Land for lifetime sales. I can imagine the spike and decline of Too Much and Never Enough. Are people buying it this week? Mm -hmm. I I bet more people bought Becoming this week than bought Too Much and Never Enough, and Becoming's been out 18 months longer, don't you think? I think so, and I think... The Mary Trump book has the likelihood of snagging folks who aren't reading a whole lot of books, but who are like, oh, I want to read about the Donald Trump shenanigans. Um, That is the equivalent of like the book that you would pick up in the airport back when that was a thing, you know, or um, you're just sort of browsing somewhere and would pick it up. The Obama is I think the uh, going to have a much longer tail. And I kind of, now that we're like thinking through it, when the pre-order period was happening for the Obama book, you know, like right up until release day, a large chunk of that was in the middle of all the mm-hmm. election cycle, everything's. And there was a part of me that was like, how am I going to feel on November 17th yeah. when this Obama book comes out? Like, I think we even talked about it on the show of like, are you going to read it or not? And I was like, well, if we win this election, I'm going to be ready. Which universe we'll be read. living in, then I can tell you what I'm right. going to feel about that universe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, if we win the election, I'm going to be ready to read some Obama and, like, think about the presidency and leadership and all those things. And if we don't win the election, I'm probably not going to be in a space where that's going to, like, be something that I want to spend time mm-hmm. thinking about or that would feel good at the moment. And I'm wondering if maybe there was some of that going on too. But I I think the tale will be longer for Barack and Michelle's books um, than for the Mary Trump book. But I guess I'm not, yeah, I'm not, uh, not as surprised as disappointed. (laughs) The headline of 2020. If I think of it as um, the correlative for Mary Trump's book sales was the number of times I was refreshing 538 in a given day, right? Right. Like that kind of fever, like that was expressing itself in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not wholly inconceivable to me, but I got to be honest with you. I still am shocked that it sold that many books, books on that day. That, it really that is did a sell lot that many books. of books. But most of the Trump books had big, or many yeah. of the Trump books had big first day or first week sales. Mm-hmm. Like they're, it feels like the media appetite for those books has waned. So there's been less and less buzz about them overall, or like there were fewer. I encountered at least fewer pieces that were like 10 wild things for Mary Trump's book than I did like three years ago when people would write a Trump yeah. book and all of the like all of the newspapers would read it and break out like we read this book so you don't have to. I think that's happening less mm. and less and it's made me feel like there's less of an appetite for the Trump books, but there's clearly not. Well, what if it came out today? How many units does Too Much and Never Enough sell today if it comes out today? Way I less, mean, right? Takes, like even a third? Does it sell know. even a third? I feel like it wouldn't I even sell a third. I don't know if it sells less. Like you don't th- th- this uh-huh, particular one, like because the yeah. a large part of the argument that Mary Trump is making is like that this is a messed up person and that she, she talks about, I think, I haven't read it. Um, she talks about, I think, trauma that Donald Trump experienced. She makes some illusions slash guesses without quite diagnosing some mental health things that might be going on. And like, we're in the third week of a president sitting in the White House, like pouting and refusing mm-hmm. to acknowledge reality. So there is a an open question about like, 
what the hell's going on over there and how does a person end up this way? That yeah, it's an origin story. Trump. The closest we're ever yeah. going to get from a tell-all by someone inside the Trump with the name Trump inside the walls mm-hmm. from a very long time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it probably sells less, but probably still sells a lot. I think probably it comes in third behind Becoming in a Promised Land mm-hmm. if it's released on November 17th. Well, I mean... Now, let's assume it's not on the same day as Obama's book, um, but, you know, it comes out now, the week after the election, something like that. I think there was something, there was a feeding frenzy, an emotional feeding frenzy before the the election that too much and never enough benefited from extreme. Like, I'd love to know mm-hmm. 538's traffic. Like, what were their daily... Monthly, oh, you know, like we were unbelievable How many kinds page of numbers. Views did the two of us account for? <laughs> yeah, you, me, and Amanda were like keeping like three of their junior staffers in, in a banner ad from from Google Ads. <laughs> but like, I think that is true, and that it is a unique situation in time. Does mm-hmm. a promised land sell more books if Trump won? Is an interesting question. Does Ooh. it? Does then it get the? liberal center right anxiety purchase or does it sell fewer you could you could tell me either you could tell me either future and i would believe you because i don't because i i guess i'm wishy-washy i don't know but you could make a case that i would swallow in either way right we should have gone and pulled the first week sales for what happened when hillary clinton released that because that was like not only were we in the bad place we that were then reading a book about how we ended up in the bad place Mm -hmm. it was much later too i should say after the election too. that's true yeah it was that was that came out in the fall of 2017 so Mm -hmm. it's about a year later but i mean we were definitely solidly in the bad place at that point and i bought that book on the release day Mm -hmm. and read it and listened to the audio and like cried while driving in the car um yeah. Yeah. I, that's a great question. How would a promised land sell if we had? And it's only know. a thought I'm experiment. I'm so glad we don't have to find yeah. out, but it's an interesting thought. Same. Experiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else about? I guess the relative sales of becoming to a promised land is something we openly wondered about. I thought that becoming might nose out a promised land for first day sales, first week sales, and I believe the case I made is we've already got two other Obama books. Frankly, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've seen Audacity, Hope, and Dreams of My Father. Um, and that this is a big presidential memoir. It's much more nitty gritty, or at least I'm given to understand that it is. You can yeah. confirm if that's right or wrong. Whereas Michelle Obama's book is, I guess, more generally relatable. It's about, I mean, it's called Becoming, right? It's about, it's a, it's a memoir. It's like vaguely inspirational, maybe more than vaguely inspirational. I still haven't gotten around to it. I'm not sure when or if I will. But I think it's a straighter pitch to the book club world, the people who read Reese's book club kind of situation, which is where most of the sales are, frankly. More sales there than in presidential memoirs. Obama's an unusual case. So I guess I'm moderately surprised. And again, it wasn't huge. A hundred, well, you know, 150,000, it was 15% more. Um, I don't know. Thoughts? You're not surprised is within the realm of of predictable deviation? Yeah, I think the long tail of becoming I would still bet money on. Really? Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, that that story and Michelle Obama's particular voice and what she represents to women and specifically to black women is going to be relatable mm. for a really long time and interesting for a really long time in a way that not that presidential memoirs aren't relevant for decades later, but like the president's legacy shifts, I think, in different ways than a first lady's legacy does. Like, mm. I would bet now that like many more people, and I'm just guessing, so I might 100% be wrong, but I would bet that like more books are still selling about Jackie O than are selling about JFK and what mm. they mean, sort of like okay. what they represent. And I might be totally wrong. This yeah. is just feelings, feelings, guesses. Sure, sure, not sort of represent and. Yeah, what they like represent in culture. And I don't know, maybe a promised land is going to be a different animal. And it feels pretty different in tone from other presidential memoirs I've encountered, which admittedly is a small sample size. It's not usually my jam. Um, But I kind of, I think that Michelle might just endure for more people over time. I think that the, uh, obviously the Barack Obama presidential memoir is going to be read and referred to, but I wonder if he is more susceptible to like a big 
first couple weeks spike or a big first six months spike and then a, becoming more of a trickle. Like, if you're interested in Barack Obama's presidential memoir, are you not reading it in the first six months that it's out? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, how many people are reading My Life by Bill Clinton versus What Happened, I think, would be an interesting comp uh, to mm, some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not they're not... They're not different, but they're more similar than the other pair of comps you're ever going to get in this kind of a situation. Right. I think the other wild card is Barack's book. I, I'm using first names because you're just saying Obama over and over again. It doesn't make any sense. But um, he this is this is the chronicle of his apex. I'm not sh- so sure that we've seen Michelle Obama's apex. Mm. You know, there's a world in which. Mm-hmm. It's Brock cannot be more than he was, <laughs> right? You just can't. So, ergo, you're on the other side of whatever the mountaintop was. I think there are mountains for Michelle Obama yet to climb. She may not climb them. She may not want to climb them. And I'm being sort of vague because, you know, it's you can guess where I'm kind of thinking. But I don't know. I, I think who has whose books has more upside? I think mm-hmm. Michelle Obama maybe has more story left mm-hmm. to her than the elegant repose of one Barack Hussein Obama <laughs> at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it f- yeah, I think that's a good point. Becoming implies that there's still more. It, it not became right. Like it's the part is it's a it's a present participle. It's not a past participle. I'm to get super nerds <laughs> on it here, um, but there we are. All right, let's do another break. I feel. And, oh, go go like ahead. Go Barack ahead. would appre- Barack would just appreciate that we're talking about his book and parsing the participle. Yeah, yeah, not a promising land. It's a <laughs> there's a so i've started my notes about the obama book uh-huh. in case we do book club it together yeah. and i just feel while we're on this that i should share with you this wonderful quote that made me think of you if every argument had two sides i usually came up with four <laughs> <laughs> so you can be in good company with barack you know any company with barack i'm going to take as an enormous compliment <laughs> That is not warranted by the humble personage that is one Jeffrey O'Neill. Let's do a sponsor break. More book news. National Book Awards were announced last night. Uh, mm-hmm. Exciting picks. Um, I was thrilled, frankly, to see that Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu won for fiction. Um, mm hmm. A remarkable, heartbreaking, fantastic book that I was going to talk about and will talk about in our favorite books of the year, so I'm not going to say too much more about it. Charles Yu's previous work is also wonderful, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. I think we maybe picked that up as a follow-up as things we'd love to see adapted in Tierra Chinatown. Mm-hmm. I think this is a thing where you get need an experimental, interesting filmmaker who's willing to do interesting experimental things. The other finalist there, Rebecca's early, she gave us a horse tips here on Leave the World Behind being a book of the fall. I think it continues to be a book of the fall. There's a big mm-hmm. movie adaptation, so on and so forth. Um, I wouldn't count that out, but it made the finalist list. A children's Bible um, by Lydia Millet. Is that why we're told to say this? I cannot remember this. It's not Millet. Is yes, it one it's of Millet. Those? It's Millet. Yeah, it's Millet. Which was also on the some other list. Booker Prize shortlist, I want to say, something like that. I feel like we're just remembering the day that we talked about the National Book Awards Dang it. shortlist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then the, well, this is the shortlist, I guess a long list for the National Book Award. Secret Lives of Church mm-hmm. Ladies by Disha Filia and Shuggy Brain by Douglas Stewart, which is a real dark horse. It's made a lot of lists. Some people I know have read about it and really liked it. I guess it's um, a horror book, maybe. I don't know. Uh, that's where I am on there. Um, I'm thrilled to see Chinatown, Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu win. Nonfiction, um, surprised not to see cast, even among the finalists. I mean, these, I I don't know. I, I thought it was great. These other books could be great, too. Um, the Dead Are Rising, The Life of Malcolm X by Les Payne and Tamara Payne won. Mm. Other finalists include The Undocumented Americans by Carla Corneo Villafesencio, pardon my Spanish, Unworthy Republic, The Disposition of Native Americans on the Road to Indian Terror by Claudio Sant. My Autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chaplin, which I didn't even know that book was out. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go pick that up because Carson McCullers is a super interesting person. And How to Make a Slave and Other Essays by Gerald Walker were finalists. On the poetry side, I'm not sure. I mean, we'll just do winner here. DMZ Colony by Don Michoy. Um, and then Translated Literature, Tokyo Ueno Station by Yu Miri, translated from the Japanese by Morgan Giles, was the winner. 
And then for Young People's Literature, King and the Dragonflies by Case and Calendar is the winner. Um, also notable, We Are Not Free by Tracy, Tracy Chi, Everybody Looking by Candace Elo, When the Stars Are Scattered by Victoria Jameson and Omar Muhammad, and The Way Back by Gabrielle Savitt. Rebecca, do you have any connection to any of these books um, at this point, besides Leave the World Behind, which mm-hmm. is the only one I could guarantee you that you've read at this point? I don't. Interior Chinatown is on my list uh-huh. for that glorious period at the end of the year where I just read books and try to catch up on mm-hmm. the year. And so is a children's Bible. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in the Malcolm X book that I don't think was really on my radar yet. The wasn't Dead on mine either. That, that one nonfiction, because I'm currently going through a um, reread of James Baldwin stuff that I read in college mm-hmm. and have realized, you know, like the me of 20 years ago really did not grok most of what's here. Um, and he was, I'm in the middle of the fire next time right now. And he's um, talking about Nation of Islam stuff and exploring some things around Malcolm X. And I was like, oh, maybe I want to go read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Maybe I'll do that and this and just have like a totally. whole thing. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X a long time ago. I've never read a straight up biography. Um, and I, I'm, I don't know what the um, standing canon of Malcolm X biographies are, but it's, apparently this one's a good one. Tokyo Ino Station, um, I'm a interested observer of works in translation. I pick my spots because there's so much and it's hard to know. Check out this um, description. The main character is dead, I'm paraphrasing here, and haunts a Japanese train station. That's what this mm. is. Isn't that interesting? Okay. I like that. That is interesting. It's a fun setup. Born in Fukushima in 1933, the same year as the Japanese emperor, his life is tied by a series of coincidences to the imperial family and has been shaped at every turn by modern Japanese history. So it's like telling the story of modern Japan through a ghost haunting a train station. I'm in. <laughs> I am in yeah. on that. You know the other virtue it has going for it? You could probably guess. What? Maybe you can guess. I don't know. 192 pages. Uh-uh. Oh, I was going to guess that. I knew. I, I like, said you could probably really guess. <laughs> Easier to try. Don't Ted Lasso me, Jeff. Tapas. I don't like tapas, but if I get to eat the whole thing myself. <laughs> Wait, don't Ted Lasso you. What did I do? What was, how was the Ted Lasso? I don't get it. Easier to try. A little oh, inspirational. Try. Yeah, yeah. Easier to try. Okay. It's a good thing. <laughs> uh, let's see. Anything else there on National Book Awards? Any notable I omissions? So. I guess the cast was the one. I mean, availability yeah. bias. I've read that. It got a lot of pub. Anything else? I'm, I'm, there was nothing that I really felt like was a glaring omission, but I think also my sense of what's happening in 2020 <laughs> is completely... And like, which books were published this year is very uh, fuzzy. Re- very good. I mean... <laughs> Look, the books we've done special episodes about, and since we've done more direct book talk, talk this year than we've ever done, our best, our favorite reads of the year are being less surprising than ever. It's like, you know, you know the books That's we've true. liked and we've read. There's no weather. There's no Vanishing Haft. There's no um, mm-hmm. Transcendent Kingdom. You could have told me there's no Deacon King Kong. There's no Jack. There's no, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You could have told me, but I haven't read the other ones. I just happen to have read these, and I like these. I'm sure if I read these, I would have liked these. There we go. Um I'm not going to get in a bunch about it. I guess nope. I am. I am really surprised not to see cast though. As much as I'm saying, well, blah blah blah, books are good. That one is the one I'm really surprised not to see. There, I don't know what to tell you. I just am. Okay. Um, do I owe you one more sponsor break? I do. And then we've got um, Pillars of the Earth Publishing rumblings to talk about. Top bidders for Simon and Schuster. And what it might mean, Rebecca, kind of feels like things are coming to a head here. Like, this is going to happen, I guess, is what I'm getting from the, the things we're hearing. Like, Simon & Schuster is going to be sold, and it's going to be sold to a big company. And one, and one yeah. of those big companies already owns another giant publisher. Um, two of them. Yeah, two of them. Well, I mean, yeah, both, both serious bidders. Why, why am I being vague about this? News Corp um, and Bertelsmann are the two parent companies uh, in the mix here. News Corp owns HarperCollins, and Bertelsmann owns Penguin Random House. Or a piece of it, I can't remember quite how, how about that there's. Um, uh, Vivendi 
which is a minority of Hachette, also made a bid, mm-hmm. but apparently it wasn't serious or it wasn't close to what's getting there. At least one of the offers has topped 1.7 billion American dollars, far above the minimum Viacom CBS had set. Um, the final bids are due before final Thanksgiving. Bid. So we might know this relatively soon. Be a link in the show notes. Good reporting here from Edmund Lee in the New York Times. <sighs> you know, I guess what we thought, we said, well, mm-hmm. here's what we said. HarperCollins had been making a play to be number two. They are number two, but to climb, get close to number one, which is PRH. PRH is the leader. And in this sort of situation, I think you'd be silly not to think that they're not interested in consolidating mm-hmm. their position. They're, I think, less interested in further distance from number two, threes, and fours in the publishing world, but they're getting um, as much hay in the loft as they can for Amazon. Negotiations, mm-hmm. leverage, and things going on there. Does it matter from a book publishing world, ecosystem, health of reading that it's one or the other of these, do you think? It makes me nervous how big Penguin Random House would be if they became Penguin Random Simon Schuster House. Just unwieldy, the name. The, now there's a punctuation in PRHSNS. <laughs> Come on. Can't do that. Like, it's already more than 50% of the yep. new books published into the U.S. market in a year. I don't have the... Simon and Schuster numbers in front of me, so I don't mm-hmm. remember what percentage they represent, but it's not a small one. No, and that big of a that big of a majority for any company in any industry like, makes me nervous. But the consolidation that could happen there and the compression on um, the compression on the industry, I think it's a, it's a real double edged sword because right. they would be really accumulating additional power against. Amazon, or if you if you produce sixty five or seventy five percent of the new books in the U.S. market in a given year, you could really decide to give Amazon the middle finger and go your own way. Yeah, with a good enough plan and make some kind of impact on the brick wall that is Amazon's. Like that is appealing. Seeing a publisher not only have the firepower to do it, but actually making some play against Amazon would be really interesting and exciting and I think good for the health of the industry. But I don't know that that's something they're ever going to do, no matter how big they get. And the idea of it being that big and that like that much of a percentage of the industry, it just makes me uncomfortable. I think um, I agree with you in that regard. If we had, see, I, we just haven't seen, now maybe there are things we don't see. I actually know there are things that we don't see. Are there things that we don't see that are related to getting the metal to you know, push back in a way that feels meaningful to Amazon. If this acquisition put PRH over the top or gave them a stronger position to do things they were already doing, I think I might go in the let's have at least, let's strengthen the, the challenger to, to the champ. Mm-hmm. But since we don't see that, as you say, I guess then I would prefer HarperCollins to get stronger Right now, mm-hmm. uh, in 2019, Random House's sales exceeded $4 billion. Annual sales at HarperCollins were about 1.7. So about a third as big, you know, between you know, maybe 40-ish percent HarperCollins. Yeah. Simon & Schuster year-to-date, uh, 2020 year-to-date is 650. So I'm guessing by the end it's over $1 billion. So if HarperCollins moves from 1.7 to maybe 2.5 to 3-ish, that's a real Pepsi to the Coke. Of Penguin Random House. Mm -hmm. And that I think, again, I'm not a scholar of capitalism, but in in situations where there's a couple of good contenders, there's competition is good for a lot of different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would, if I had my choice, I want PRH to stand up to Amazon. In which case, if that helps the ammunition, that fight, great. I'm not seeing them picking that battle. So then I'd rather HarperCollins have more ammunition to have Mm -hmm. a stronger contender there. I guess that's my flow. That's my decision. Well, and... And it might actually make the case against Amazon Amazon stronger if PRH stays the size that it is and HarperCollins acquires Simon & Schuster. Mm. And then those two conglomerates collectively have four of the big five. Right, right. Because we know publishing would never collude. Oh, wait, there's a giant giant lawsuit about that. It's caused a whole bunch of problems. Wait, okay. Yeah, that could be interesting. Um, I'm not 
as concerned about like what the future looks like for books and readers if mm-hmm. PRH acquires Simon and Schuster, because as we've established, there are already like way more books published into the world than any reader could possibly consume, and a lot of the a lot of aspects of some of the publishing business models are really not functional. So there are things that could be corrected that would change the world for books and readers in more positive ways. I think um, like not giving out a jillion dollar advances to things you don't think are going to sell. Um, Like, Mm. let's solve that problem before we worry that publishers consolidating into each other is going to result in like fewer books or fewer deals for authors. Like, I understand that um, there's a risk that consolidation might mean that it's harder to get a book deal. Um, But I don't think anyone is entitled to a book deal in the same way that like if Netflix and Hulu merged, that might make it harder to get your show produced. But okay like you're no one's entitled to have their show produced Mm. Um, industries do this stuff all the time so i'm less concerned about that and that's one of the argument that's one of the primary arguments that i see advanced when this stuff comes up in the news is like oh but then it'll be harder for authors and it's like well that might be an effect of this but i'm not convinced it's a reason not to do it yeah and we've got we got some follow-up when we talked about this last or recently about more consolidation and prh might mean they have more leverage over authors as well and the terms being worse and rights and so on and so forth. I guess, well, no, I know I'm sympathetic to that. Is it meaningfully different for PRH to buy mm-hmm. SNS than HarperCollins to buy SNS in that situation? Because they're both getting stronger. They're both getting more leverage. Um, in that scenario, to strengthen the position of authors, would you need some third party to come in who doesn't have currently have uh, a yeah. presence in books so that there are more bidders. There are more competitors for titles, for manuscripts and, and content going on and so forth. I don't know. Sounds like it's going to happen in one of these. I think if you're Viacom, are you just taking the highest bid? And if it's, that's the truth, then it's probably going to be PRH. They have more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be HarperCollins is trying to buy... HarperCollins would be trying to buy... Well, it's a parent corp, so it's a news corp, so it doesn't really matter. I guess um, maybe if you're Viacom, you want a deal to happen quicker and you maybe think that PRH does have some antitrust situations. Um, mm-hmm. When we first speculated about this, we wondered about Penguin Random House acquiring Simon & Schuster as being an antitrust kind of a situation because you really are moving into a situation where you're more you're more than 50%, maybe 60, 65% of the market, as Rebecca said. does the Do the feds get interested? Well, if Trump won, we probably thought not. Does Biden's team care? You know, I don't know. And if you can move it before the inauguration, um, because the current administration is, I don't know what you call what they're doing, but (laughs) vigilance is not a word I would use to describe it. So maybe Permissive? uh, uh, Negligent? Petulant, toxic, uncool in the extreme, whatever (laughs) else you want to say. Maybe maybe you think strategically about how you can get a deal done quickly while... Um, the adults are trying to get the, the house sorted out. Maybe, maybe you can sneak some cookies out of the cookie jar um, <laughs> while the basement's flooding and the house metaphors continue. Breaking news here on the Book Riot podcast, the winner of the 2020 Man Booker Prize, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, which I was just shouting out. Unforgettable hey. story of a young Hugh Shuggy Bane, a sweet and lonely boy who spends his 1980s childhood in a rundown public housing in Glasgow, Scotland, this is the official publisher's descriptions. Thatcher's policies have put husbands and sons out of work, and the city's notorious drug epidemic is waiting in the wings. Uh, skipping down to the end where they give you the prose description rather than the summary. A heartbreaking work of addiction, sexuality, and love. Shuggy Bane is an epic portrayal of working-class family is rarely seen in fiction. Recalling the work of Edward Luid, Alan Hollinghurst, Frank McCourt, and Han- Hanya Yanagahara, this all means you're going to cry your face off. That's what those comments yeah. mean to me. It is a blistering <laughs> debut by a brilliant novelist who has a powerful and important story to tell. Congratulations. Grove. Shouts yeah. to Grove. That's great. Oof. Uh, 448 pages. Nice. Sounds like it has to be a five-alarm snob. I mean, it's... You say Hanya, Hanya Yanagihara and Frank McCourt? In the same sentence. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> we should do a uh, like power ranking of snot oh, bomb reads. Oh, snot bomb re- I've never read A Little Life, 
and I'm tearing up just thinking about what I've heard about it. <laughs> I am I am emotionally unprepared for you to read a little life. <laughs> What's the saddest book you've ever read? Off top of your head, we'll we'll do a we can do one of these sometime. Ooh, but in your memory, man. do you have a saddest I mean, book you've ever read? A little life is up there because it's just relentless. Yeah. Um, I don't have recency or availability stuff here because it's been years since I intentionally read a really sad book because 2016 to the present has been hard yeah. enough. Um, I'm going to have to think about that. Angela's are, Ashes was extreme. It would be Ooh. in my top. I mean, it is so sad. I mean, Beloved, but I don't even think of Beloved as sad. Like, it's a different flavor. Like, it is sad, but it's also horror. You know, like, oh, you know it's what? terror. answer. Okay. Wave by Sonani Sonali Duraniagala, which oh, I don't is know about that book. Lu- it's it came out years of several years ago, but it is about losing her entire family in the tsunami. Oh in, God! Yeah, and then written a few years later as she had started to heal. But I do remember I made the fatal error of reading that on a flight, and I didn't like I knew it would be moving, but I didn't know, mm. and just sitting there like slowly leaking from the fate. Like I couldn't stop reading it. It was it's a very good book. Um, but just like slowly leaking from the face for two hours. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of sad books too. I guess in, in terms of its purest, it's like crystalline powder form of sadness for me was where the red fern grows. Cause all mm-hmm. that book is, is sad. Like the whole point of that book, um, spoiler alert, fast forward 30 seconds is getting you ready for the dogs to die and to plant red ferns. Like, it's not about anything else. It's not really even a coming-of-age story. It's just like, check out how sad you can be about dogs. That's what that book is. I have actually made it to this point in my life having never read that, and I feel fine about it. If we ever lose a bet to each other, you will read Where the Red Fern Grows, (laughs) and I will read A Little Life. Absolutely not. (laughs) That's how you lose a bet. We're all losers here. I reject these terms. (laughs) I reject your your offer of sadness. (laughs) We're we're, we're full up on that over here. I know, right? Uh, so anyway, there we go. You know, in a different life or no, in the same life of a different time, I would be rushing out to buy this book right now today. I'm worried right now. Do I need to, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's wonderful, but you know, there's a lot of great books. Is that the particular flavor of great I'm looking for right now? Tough to say, Rebecca Shinsky. Tough to say. I... I can't go there yet. Yeah. But it does sound good. It does sound good. I'll just... I need to be solidly, uh, I think we just need some, I, I need to be, have my emotional house built on the rock mm-hmm. and not on the sand. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're not there yet. Uh, let's do good news. Um, we wondered about this and the, the follow-up has been a long time coming. Maybe we haven't, we've missed the stories. Uh, we covered a wave of major metropolitan library systems announcing their elimination of library fees. And here we are on the other side of that in the Chicago Public Library, which at one point maybe still is the largest system to have announced eliminating late fees. They say that is paid off. And what does paid off Mm -hmm. look like? Well, 1,650 long overdue books were returned in each of the each of the five months after the fines were eliminated October one. So we're looking at you know 30 grand um, of books coming back before then. Look look at this before and after. Thank you so much. To the Chicago Sun Times and Mitch Dudek, but also this, who wrote this piece, but also the Chicago Public Library for giving us the nice juicy data yes. we're looking for. Yeah, this is juicy data. It's almost double the number of overdue books that are being returned each month is almost double what it was when they had yes. late fees. We see a lot. We see long lost patrons and materials returned to the library. The impact of eliminating overdue library fines is clear. That's Acting Library Commissioner Mary Ellen Mesner. Chicagoans are connecting to their community libraries and using this resource without anxiety or financial barriers to access. Uh, the library system had typically created, collected between eight hundred and nine hundred thousand dollars a year in late fees, um, but books and patrons coming back—they're basically paying that much money to get books back and more patrons. In the five mm-hmm. months after abolishing library fines, about three hundred three hundred and sixty-one thousand books were checked out, a seven percent increase from nice. the year before. Well, that's really important because circulation is a huge yeah. factor in what kind of funding libraries yeah. get. So getting your circulation up is good for the dollars. Mm-hmm. 
So I was really glad to see that. May your efforts succeed and may these statistics induce library systems that were on the fence or needed some. But what does it actually mean? Yeah. I hope this is enough. See that data. Yeah. I hope so too. That's our show. As always, you can find show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com, especially looking for last minute, no guarantees, but Santa Claus may have a few gifts under the tree, or gifts on the, on the elf shelf uh, ready to be distributed. Also, if you've got books for teenagers who are wrestling, I think is a, a fair way of saying with, mm-hmm. um, with uh, gender identity, um, non, non-conforming, non-binary, different kinds of folks who need reading about them and their experiences that can give them something to hold on to and which which has to be can only imagine extraordinarily difficult time and i hope you listener out there who asked for this request i hope by the time we get recommendations to they were less needed but if they do get to you i hope they're helpful thanks so much for trusting us uh with that request yeah Rebecca, next time, what do we, what's the next time? What are we doing next time? Is it the next time they're going to hear from us? Is it, is it um, moms, dads, and grads? Or uh, yeah. uh, recommendations? <laughs> yeah, six it months. Is. See, in six yes. months, we're out. <laughs> Sounds about right. We're going to be crying. <laughs> nice six-month vacation. <laughs> yeah. Sit on a beach somewhere. Reading sad books. Yep. Yeah, so the next time you'll hear from us, uh, November 30th, the first of two parts of holiday recommendation mm-hmm. requests. So thank you so much. Kind of brings our year of news to the end, frankly, because after that we got a bonus show. I, I guess we, we, you know, we haven't talked about for one of our final episodes of the year, we've typically done a, what were the stories of the year? Maybe we should consider oh, yeah. that. Or if maybe, maybe Trump review. and COVID has so smashed and diseased uh, and, you know, attribute which of those verbs you want to which other one, that <laughs> it feels almost like, I don't know. It feels like picking through the garbage of 2020 to try to figure mm-hmm. out what the best book stories yeah, of the year like, were. Usually I construct that agenda for that show by scrolling back through yeah. the giant agenda document from the previous year and being like, oh, yeah, that thing was interesting and this other thing was interesting. And so like, I, I might spend 10 minutes doing that and yeah. just decide if we have enough there to, to do it. Off the that. top of your head, do you have one? Like if you like off the top of your head, what would you say the big book story of the year is? I got nothing. I mean, the story of the year, of course, is Trump and COVID. So it must be the Trump book, Cavalcade. And the I mean, we talked about it. The best-selling book of all time in one day is Mary Trump's Never Too Much and Never Enough. Yeah, the Trump book, Cavalcade, or really like the impact of COVID on the industry or on bookstores or like shipping and all all those things. I think those are stories that are about this Mm -hmm. year. But there wasn't like a... There wasn't a publishing story. There was a how the world impacted publishing yeah, story. Yeah. I'd yeah. say off the top of my head, I think the timing and surge of use of bookshop is interesting, but I haven't gone back to look at it. Like if you connect it to actually a book publishing focused industry story that connects readers and titles mm-hmm. and Amazon and everything else, that would be one I'd put up there for something that might be enduring. We'll see. That's the yeah. one that comes to mind there. Ebook sales, live e checkouts from libraries put in the COVID train. Um, I think that's that's one for sure. But all right, well let's take a look. We'll we'll take a look back at the fifty-eight years that were twenty twenty <laughs> and see what we've got. Rebecca, thank you as always. We'll talk to you yeah. later. Have a good one. Rebecca.